Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And if it's your first time tuning in, Employee of the Month is a show I started when I could not figure out how to get into TV writing. And so I just started interviewing people I admired. I ended up being the perfect um, job for me because I had been doing a doctorate in clinical psych. And then I dropped out and was doing stand-up and journalism. And I was like, oh, my God, this combines all three. Um, And I had Tara Brock, our guest today, on the live taping at Joe's Pub, but I wanted to like have a second and for lack of a better word, a more thoughtful conversation. I genuinely recommend you listen to our first episode. It was a lot of fun to do, but it was also really nice to um, go to one of her Dharma talks and speak with her uh, one-on-one and have that opportunity to do so. You can go to tarabrock.com to check out her meditation. Um, She also has information there about others and she does both Dharma talks and meditation. And you can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out about future live tapings, um, bringing them every month to Joe's Pub and we have incredible lineups uh, coming up. So without further ado, uh, this interview was recorded live in Bethesda, Maryland at the uh, Unitarian Church. Um, I suspect there are more than one Unitarian church. This one was on River Road. Um, Enjoy our interview. Um, I'm so excited that you um, had the time to um, speak a little bit more just because people loved our interview so much and I wanted to um, talk to you a little bit and hear from you more importantly about your own experiences. You do such a good job of um, leading so many of us through how to cope with our own um, stress and sadness and trauma and all of these things and wanted to hear about your experience since it is your profession to deal with the most intimate emotions. Mm. Well, I'm delighted to be doing this with you. So, yeah. Um, So tell me, um, and some things I'm going to try not to repeat because people can listen to the first podcast interview with us which was on stage at Joe's Pub but I wanted to hear like do you compartmentalize do you feel like you're someone who's good at compartmentalizing I compartmentalize more than I wish I would Um, I can easily you know get up in the morning and do my hike and my meditation and feel very open-hearted and attuned and have that prayer to respond to whatever arises with kindness through the day and then and then find in a very short time I've shrunk into a very narrow mind and I'm responding to emails and trying to check things off the list and feeling oppressed by demands and just in a much more kind of um, grim and narrow space so um, my my deep deep prayer is that you know the open-heartedness would bleed into my day in a way that I wouldn't get uh, caught up in in the little things so much. But it's interesting to say that because I feel like the people who are most successful are able to compartmentalize. Like I'll just use Bill Clinton as an example, which was sort of a, an, an old one, but, but uh-huh. an easy one, I think, for people. Um, 
you know, where they're able to sort of shut off. You could use Obama. I, I think any president mm. actually probably has mm. to be able to sort of not focus on what's going on with his uh, daughter's science project and just focus on what's going on in Iraq and then shut that off and deal with healthcare and then shut that off and deal with whether an ambassador has a gluten-free meal yeah, or whatever it is. Totally makes sense. And I think, yes, I have a certain capacity to be one-pointed. And I always have. And I, you know, I grew up in a family that was very achievement-oriented. My parents were social activists, and you know, went through both of them went through college, and were ve just very achievement-oriented. So for me, there was an equation of performing uh, will help to get me respect and love. So, you know, I definitely have that type A, go for it, hone right in uh, capacity. And so when I say I have some. Um, a bit of regret about how complete that is. Um, I can sense in me that sometimes I put achieving a goal first and I put on the sideline sometimes the quality or tone or whatever of an interaction. Now that's softened over the years. I'm more remembering uh, that we're humans and we need to be grateful to each other and show appreciation and so on. But I. I used to be very, very quick to all business, and now I'm still pretty quick to it. Yeah. yeah. But I also wanted to ask about compartmentalizing in terms of the quality of the interactions, and, and really what I mean is like, you know, people come to you and they tell you um, really painful and traumatizing things mm -hmm. sometimes, mm -hmm. and you have your own stuff. You know, you have your own uh, life's inevitable losses. Um, and let me just think about your mother, you know, passing. And how do you, how much do, I don't know how to ask this, but like how much are you affected by, mm -hmm. you know, the level of um, emotional vulnerability? Yeah. No, it's a good question because like any therapist or many teachers that are encountering a lot of the human suffering that's around, um, and I've changed over time how it affects me. Um, it used to be that I was either somewhat um, armored, like I just kind of didn't let things touch me, or else I'd let things touch me and I'd really feel, you know, just heartbroken. And that would, it would be a lot to hold. And it felt like I was a self trying to hold, make room for something really huge. Um, what I've learned more in the last decades is, I, I kind of liken it to the breath, that to breathe it in and let myself be touched, but to breathe out and really sense that there's a bigger universe that's holding it. And it's really the only way that I can stay tender, like that can be open-hearted and have somebody tell me that their uh, child died. Because that, that's the one that will most get me, you know, because it's just so quick that the mother in me feels what it would be like to lose my son. And so I can cry with them, but I also can very much feel it and let the universe hold the depth of that sorrow. So um, that I had to learn how to do. So and how did you learn that? Because it, it's... It I can see on one level that it could be a habitual thing that one learns, but on another deep level, like, I don't know how to turn that off when you want to turn it off. <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> That sponge-like quality to sort of let every emotion seep into you. Yeah. It's, 
Yeah, and it's not like a switch for me. It's the reason it's gradual because it's a shift in my own sense of who I am. That it used to be more like my ego self was trying to make room for it and hold it all. And now, um, when people tell me things, it's not like Tara, the ego person self, is holding it. It's more like it just enters in and my heart feels it, but then it's breathed into a whole field of what I am. It's like I'm bigger than a separate self that's trying to hold something. And my sense is with compassion, I have a lot of people that tell me, you know, I encourage a lot uh, letting ourselves be touched by pain because we can't feel tender unless we are. We can't respond to what's going on with the refugees right now unless we really, really let ourselves close in, look and feel the pain of that. And if we feel like we're an individual self that is trying to hold it all, it'll be overwhelming, we'll get flooded. So we have to also be able to breathe out and sense uh, that all of us are holding it together, that there's something larger. What about with your own losses? Um, do you approach them in the same way? Like I'm, I'm thinking about losing your mom or um, a divorce or whatever it is, you know. I pro there's two levels going on. The human conditioned self in me feels all the grief and all the fears of the losses and all, all the sorrows and gets broken up. And there's still a knowing, a background knowing that it's, it's um, moving through and being held by a presence, a love, a field that's bigger than the idea of a self. And they both go on because I have all the normal range of emotions. <laughs> like every day I can get annoyed by stuff and yet there's still like annoyance is like waves in an ocean. There's still a sense that there's something bigger that it's happening in. So I'm not completely caught in the reaction. There's also two other factors I was thinking about. Like one is, is that certain professions lend themselves to come face to face with more trauma and pain even if it's hearing about it versus, you know, experientially being in the thick of it, you're still exposed to it. Yeah. And then the other factor is the one where you can't control, where you have no idea that someone's going to come in that day or that something's going to happen in your own family or your own health or, you know, so, so one is like, I don't want to say choosing a profession in which one is more exposed to it, but certainly choosing a profession where the emotional quality, the positive is that you really care about what you do. Yeah. Um, and the challenge, I would imagine, would be, well, what is the challenge for you? Well, the re what got me motivated into this line of work, so to speak, you know, yeah. we're, you know, being a meditation teacher and really working with the whole, all the living, dying issues that come up, what drew me to it is a real deep yearning to discover freedom in the midst of it all. Like, I get that this body's gonna die, and I get that everybody I love is gonna go through the stuff that's heartbreaking. And it seems like there's, the, if I wanna live fully, I need to be able to have a heart that has space for all of that. Otherwise, I'm in some way, you know, tensing against what's around the corner. So I signed up for it on purpose, to like, to be able to um, participate in the most intense joys and the most intense sorrows because I really want to have that freedom and that space to live in the midst of it all. Yeah. So I'm game for it. And, I, and it's true, I do. People that contact me are the ones that are either totally celebrating or totally grieving things. And you know, it's, 
they're both part of this, what happens. Wait, you get people who are celebrating life too? Yeah. Tell me about totally. that extreme. Well, I get people that have started doing this practice. And when I say this practice, I mean just paying attention more, yeah. more consciously to their moment, staying, you know, not, not exiting on, you know, with their fantasies or their obsessions, but really staying in the moment more and discovering in it incredible joy. Like people that say, I've never really been able to be intimate before with other people, but now that I can stay with myself, like I can stay with my shame and start having compassion for my own self, I'm able to stay with others in a way I never could before. So I have people celebrating intimacy. I have people celebrating because they're more in their body and then they go for a walk and they start feeling the elements in their body. They start feeling, you know, the wind and the air and the smells like through their whole body. So they're celebrating being more alive, you know. Are there certain um, people you've ever encountered where you're like, I can't treat this person? Like something, I know for a psychologist it would be like a transference kind of thing, but it, uh, is there a type of issue or sometimes a situation where you've just been like, you know what, I'm not the best person for this. I can't do this. There's definitely some people that I'm more naturally able to work with than others. And I mean, Chogyam Trungpa, one, this is a, a Tibetan teacher, he has this very cool thing. He says, never give up on anybody just on some level know that everyone has this capacity to to wake up their heart and mind. And so that's in me, that even when I hit a wall, there's still some place in me that really can see goodness in beings. Like that that I can do. And and I love that. That like feels like a gift that I can be with pretty much anybody or hear about anybody and some and find some light there. Yeah. Yeah, it's also like I think of it on a, such a superficial level of looking at someone and like everyone has at least one attractive quality about them. Mm -hmm, but like mm -hmm. just because when I'll go on dates or something like that and I'll be like, okay, but he has cute eyes. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah, you'll find yeah. one thing. I yeah. know it sounds so glib, but. No, but that's the idea. But it's the way it, it's outward in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then with more serious things of like trying to understand a dictator or something, you know, someone who who's really hurt you in your own life. Um to have the compassion for them, to let them go. I think that's been like one of the greatest gifts of meditation. It really is. Because then when the people that cause suffering, something in you really gets, they have to be suffering to cause suffering. Yeah. And when you get that, when you can actually see it, when you can actually look towards where their vulnerability is, um, you know, I can stay defended. Like I have a few people in my life that in some way have hurt me in ways that it's very hard for me to feel soft and tender and open, but I can see enough of that person suffering that there's still some quality of I'm available. I haven't pushed them totally out of my heart. How about um, anger? I want to talk about anger. Um, I feel like women, there have been a lot of articles about how when women show anger, and I actually think that this, this doesn't necessarily need to be fully gendered, but um, the articles that I've been reading about have been that women get punished for showing anger. Um, and I was reading about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and she recommended not <laughs> showing anger or being judicious, uh, pun intended, about how you um, show it. And I just wanted to hear for your own experience, um, is there a way to be mindfully angry? Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, anger is intelligent. Anger tells us that in some way there's an obstacle to what will help bring fulfillment. So 
the first thing is to to really honor that there's an intelligence and we have to listen to it. If we don't listen to it, we're going to end up not manifesting all of what we can be. So that's one piece. The second piece is that if we get possessed by anger, we won't be able to manifest all that we are because let's say the bottom line is anger comes because there's some unmet need, there's an obstacle, and we won't, and by being aggressive, the very thing we want we won't get. I mean, if you're, if somebody isn't being loving towards you and you want their love, being angry at them is not going to get you closer. So the question is, how do you listen to the intelligence of it? How do you let the energy be there, the energy that is um, really en- enlivening and big and intense, so that it's, but not to have it rule you, to still sense who you are beyond the anger. And so that, that's the trickiness of anger. But with women, for me, it used to be that I had a sense that if I was angry I wasn't being spiritual. So, I mean, I was like really a um, good little girl trained by, you know, the culture and by religion and spirituality to watch out and a lot of spiritual traditions say don't be angry. So um, I had to for a long time forgive the anger. Like I, when anger would come up, I had to on purpose say forgiven, forgiven. Not like this is bad, I forgive it, but this is like another weather system coming through. Yeah. It's totally okay. So first I had to really make it okay so I could listen to the intelligence of it and also not get lost in it. But once, once we make it okay and listen to the intelligence of it, just to, fe- to go out of the storyline is what's important. Um, he's bad, she's bad, uh, I shouldn't, he couldn't, I didn't, he, you know, out of the storyline and let the energy of it just be pure energy in your body and see what's underneath it, and that's what's critical. Because underneath anger, there's always either hurt or fear. And if you don't pay attention to what's underneath it, then you don't end up getting what you want. So I've um, been describing it like a U-turn, that Mm -hmm. when we're angry, we have it fixated on the bad other out there. Okay, so um, the trick is to honor the intelligence of it, say, okay, there's something we need to have you know, taken care of, but then do a U-turn and bring the energy to a kind of increase saying, okay, so if I wasn't able to make that person wrong, what would I, what would I have to be feeling? What's the real vulnerability here? And what, what I usually find out is underneath is um, usually hurt, like I feel like in some way somebody hasn't um, been valuing me, respecting me, loving me. And if I can bring kindness and presence to that hurt place, then I come into a place of balance where I can then communicate in a way that's not going to elicit defensiveness. So that's, to me, some of the key pieces on working with anger. It makes perfect sense. It's just like in the moment how difficult that is to carry it out. And you can't usually in the moment. So in the moment, the best you can do is pause and count to ten. pause and try not to say the thing you're going to say and see, you know, if you can even do a little bit of a pause, there's a little bit more chance at having some more choice in how you respond. Because if we just react in the moment, we end up burrowing and in deeper into whatever the patterning is. I think maybe count to ten in a different language, because then you have to also <laughs> think about... Am I doing it in this right order? <laughs> I think that's good. I like that. <laughs> do you ever find yourself um, 
because I've, I've listened to your podcast a lot and you'll be meeting with other spiritual leaders or meeting with people about how to become more active um, in dealing with large societal issues. Do you ever find yourself either feeling like you are or someone else you're talking to is, is using um, the right voice, the right tone, saying the right words, but they're emotionally distance, distancing themselves from the subject at hand, I'm, not, I'm again. I apologize that I'm not able to. Yeah, no. I think you're. I, I love what you're getting at because it's one of my big concerns with some spiritual communities is that spirituality is a, a way of, in some way, I'm buffering from engaging with some of the real raw, painful stuff that's going on in this society. And um, for instance, uh, the day that I read that 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 day that. Uh, Congress was, you know, this whole thing about shutting their doors down to the Syrian refugees. When yeah. I read about that, I felt a lot of anger, like a whole lot of anger. And so I did what we're talking about. I made the U-turn. I mean, I was angry at the, um, and I was angry at the 29 uh, Republican governors and one Democratic governor that wanted to shut the states down from taking in Syrian refugees. So I felt all this anger, and it was all targeted outward. So I did the U-turn, and I felt under the anger this incredible grief for the refugees. And it felt really important that the energy of the anger and underneath that the energy of the grief that I let myself feel that, because then that led me to wanting to speak in, in give, in when I give talks and so on, to, to knowing the importance of that. If we're detached, you know, if we have all this equilibrium, but we're using the detachment as a way to actually not let ourselves feel the pain of the world, then we won't respond in a way that's compassionate in an active way. It'll keep us inactive and, and pulled back. It, you have to feel things in order to act. How do you balance then, like, wanting to be helpful or of service to someone in a different culture or, you know, maybe even just different political values, um, and then being true to your own? And I can give a couple of concrete examples. Like, if I were to go help out um, in certain areas of the Middle East or Africa or even with the Tea Party here, but... Um, my values about what's okay for women are very different from what may be valued there and um, may be asked for by the very women in that community. And I, I mean, it goes back to the sort of debate about um, bringing in one's cultural values versus respecting what is, but it is a fine balance when it gets to really difficult subjects like um, female genital mutilation um, or how domestic abuse is dealt with, or marriage, or education even. You know, um, have you ever encountered that where you've wanted to be of service to someone or some people, but also know that your inherent values are different? Only on a small scale. I mean, I've, I've worked with some women uh, f from Islamic traditions that weren't as uh, willing or interested in having the rights that I felt should be their rights, and that wasn't where they wanted help, or that wasn't where they wanted support, and that's okay. You know, it's like, on some level, there's always differences of what we believe, and, you know, my, my creed has basically been show up and just 
love people and care about them and do and see where we can collaborate together. So that that's felt. I haven't run into a really big collision on that one. Does that make sense? What I was saying. Yeah, that sometimes helping means that you're supporting, in part, a system that you actually think is harmful. And that I think that there's all sorts of political action and social action that sometimes have that in, built into it. Completely and, built into it. Yeah, and so it makes it very imperfect, but it's, it's just the way it is. It's like we still need to show up and engage as well as we can, and sometimes it's messy. And in your own personal life, do you ever, like, react? And are you ever reactive and say the wrong thing? And Every day. <laughs> <laughs> On some level, yes. That, I Truly, every day I can say there's a part of me monitoring... And mostly it goes on with, um, you know, with my husband or on a phone call with a sister or my son or whatever, where on some level um, I'll make a criticism or I'll um, not be generous in a way that I could have been generous. So I'm always monitoring. But the difference between me now and decades ago is um, I do not build up a lot of, um, you know, points against myself and then end up feeling like I'm a bad person. What changed? Um, I have had so many rounds of encountering that sense of uh, personal deficiency or failure and then seeing it and saying, okay, let me just be kind to myself and, you know, putting my hand on my heart and saying, it's okay, it's okay, sweetheart, that I have, that now the who I am is less in any narrative of a failing person or a bad person and more is just resting in that kind of uh, awareness or witness that just cares. So I I get that I have conditioning still playing out that's sometimes greedy and selfish and self-centered and aggressive and all that stuff still plays out. AKA human. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. (laughs) But I'm actually a lot more okay with it. Do you feel like after, I mean, do you ever have days or weeks or months or years where you um, end up investing so much emotionally in your work that by the time you come home, you're not as emotionally available? Absolutely. I mean, I watch in my marriage how um, I'll end up putting, I end up doing too much, I'm too busy, and that stresses me, and then Jonathan gets the raw end of the deal, you know, or he, he gets the, the, the person who's completely just numbed out in a vegetable. So, yeah. How do you deal with that? I apologize later. <laughs> no, he, I am lucky because he's very, um, very kind and very allowing of that. And I'm try, where I'm trying is not to schedule in a way that makes me uh, so off balance. And this may be an unanswerable question, which I seem to be um, specializing in in this conversation. <laughs> um, are there times where you've like, feel burnt out because you've heard a similar story over and I know it's a new person, but the experience feels like, oh my gosh, I've dealt with this so many times over and over. Is there ever a time where you're just like, meh? Most of the time, it's um, a combination of um, feeling kind and bemused that we all, we, we are all so much repeating the same stories. It's like I've got... You know, if anybody talked into my ears the way I talk to myself, I would just in a moment say, just shut up. You know? I know, but it, how do you cut it out? 
Well, that's the thing. That's where meditation helps a lot. It's like it's very much. It's much easier now than it used to be to turn to notice it's happening and say thank you very much, but no thank you, and turn my attention to just listening to the sounds around me or to feeling my breath. It's just much easier. And um, when if there's a particularly repetitive visitor in my mind that's that's nagging. Um, I, I go into my body and feel where there's something usually going on, some fear, some upset, something that needs attention in my body, and I go pay, pay attention there. It's too bad you can't like Airbnb that feeling. Like, <laughs> <laughs> go on vacation, honey. Why you <laughs> oh, you've got that one? All right, I'll switch. That I'll, yeah, it'd be interesting <laughs> to see what yours is like for a while. I, I can handle guilt more than aggression. Let's switch. <laughs> <laughs> really, really. Could widen our capacities here. And. What's your hope, like, when you do this, like, for you, I guess, because you do similar workshops again and again, um, I don't know, what's your hope when you do them, if you've done, let me rephrase that, when you've done a workshop that you've done before, or you're leading a talk that's similar to one you've given before, maybe not recently, maybe 10 years ago, what's your hope and what you get out of it. What are you hoping for to get out of tonight? Tonight you have a um, Dharma talk that you're leading. Tonight, I think it's always the same hope. And it's that um, for myself that I'll be as real, you know, just authentic and there, right here, you know, as possible, so that it's alive. And that um, for others, that they'll engage with it in a way that helps them become more who they are, which is more um, loving, more true to themselves. You know, so that's always the hope. And it really doesn't matter whether I'm doing the same material. It's like I used to be self-conscious because, you know, I, I have basically the same. It's the same teachings, and I. Um, share them with different examples and stories and poems and jokes and this and that. But yeah, it's I know some of your jokes now. By heart, yeah. yeah. I could just raise a finger, number one, and you'd know which yeah. one was coming. That's the thing about humor, though. Like, some jokes are, I call them, you like them because they're familial. Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, you kind of look forward to hearing it again. And, um, and then other jokes that you just like them for their f- rawness in that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The surprise. Yeah. Although now I'm going to apply that theory about human, you know, there are two kinds of people, people who divide the world into two kinds of people and everyone else. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I feel like that could be said about my joke theory there. I mean, it's like, I'm sure there's other kinds of jokes as well, but I, I certainly recognize those two. Yeah. And, well, so, so I think what happened is I'm way more tolerant of repeat, you know, because it's like a poem or like anything. This is you can be as alive in the middle of something repeated or as dead in, in in the midst of something that's completely different. It just doesn't matter. It's the quality of presence. How much does like being on Oprah or um, I don't know being highlighted in her magazine or being part of Omega or I, I just I had this yoga teacher and she was really a phenomenal yoga teacher, senior yoga teacher, and she was so upset that she wasn't in yoga magazine. And she's like, oh, they only have these young teachers. Why don't they have the older? And it was just so hmm. unfortunately cathartic for me because I was like, oh, my God, it's no different. <laughs> like, every uh-huh. profession is a hustle. Even, like, this really, and she really is a, a thoughtful, spiritual person. <laughs> so it was 
even more cathartic. I was like, oh my God, how, you know, what kind of impact does like being on Oprah have for you? You know, um, in the Buddhist scriptures, they say that on the stages of enlightenment, the last thing to go is comparing mind. And I think that's so true. It's like, it's part of our, the, the structure of our brains to look at our herd and see where we stand in our herd. It just, the mind just does it like a flash. So when I see, um, you know, like a conference and I see the lineup and it's the lineup of the people I usually would think maybe I should be part of that lineup, there's something in me that thinks, hey, wh what happened here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or, um, <clears throat> yeah, when I'm, when I, if I'm not invited to something or I'm not interviewed as one of the, you know, five people in a certain group that, you know, is the field that I'm into, I notice it and I can feel some squeeze. And <clears throat> it doesn't bother me too much. It's, it's, it's cause like, I think I've confessed my, um, grandiosity and confessed my inferiority so much you know, I mean, I've I've written a chapter in a book on being special person, where I, you know, on some level, some part of me was really buying in and buys into, like, in some some sense of self-importance, like I'm the one that knows something about something, you know, and deep down, that's painful. You know, it's painful to be special person. It's painful to be the chosen one. It's painful to not be chosen. It's painful to be unimportant. They're all painful. So. What I get out of it is the more I can name it out loud and the more public I am about that stuff, the less I actually take it seriously, which is a really uh, a blessed way to deal with it. Because yeah, of course, I, of course I have attachments to being um, known and adored and appreciated and respected and all those things, and yet that attachment is, you know, it's a painful one. How do you figure out how much to bill? How much to bill? Yeah, like whether it's like a one-on-one -on -one <clears throat> consultation or a conference or a speaking, like how, how does that stuff get? Worked out? Yeah, because like in for, if I write for a television show, if it's a union show, it's, it's sort of worked out for me. It's kind yeah. of an easy deal. Yeah. Well, it's an easier deal. You still think you're gonna get fired at every second, but yeah. Well, um, I do a whole lot for nothing. You know, I just, I spend most of my day doing things that don't have any compensation for them. Me neither. We have so much in common. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, sweetie. I'm not, I'm not thinking you're not saying that with great happiness. No, I'm not advocating for it. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> the way I've organized my life is to do a lot of stuff for practically nothing and then have a few things that pay really, really well and insist on that. And so as I keep a certain number of things on my calendar that I know will cover me. Yeah. And in terms of retirement and things like that, just because it's so similar, like ultimately you are a freelancer. Yeah. And so you don't necessarily have a 401k plan. Like, you know, um, so I guess when you pick, you sort of decide what the number is that you'd like to make that year that you feel you need to make that you can also save or how does, how do you do it? I've never been good at that. I, I never have organized my life around money. I'm really, really fortunate that I like to work hard anyway and I seem to find my way to a certain number of well-paying gigs so that I'm doing fine. I have no complaints. I really feel very blessed on that front. I love this because I'm going to be like, you know what, I haven't hit those well-paying gigs yet, but I'm going to. And it's okay because I didn't revolve my life around money. I revolved it around becoming better at what I do. That's beautiful. I mean, I see some people that 
do make more money because they focus on money, but they're not the happy ones, and it's never enough. Yeah. That's the challenge of it. If you, the, this life is so short, do what you love, really do what you love, be fully who you are and do what you do from that and work out the money afterwards. It's so interesting that you say that because when other people look to me for advice, I'm always like, don't do what I'm doing because I love what I do so much that it's, it's okay, but I was willing to live with the risk and vulnerability. And I think that that is an important part, sort of a, um, I think that if you really can live with it, you won't even be asking. <laughs> That's true. You have you can tolerate it, and it's a real blessing to be passionate about what you do. Oh, it's so lucky. It's definitely. I think it enables relationships. In some ways, people can hide in their work, but in other ways, when you have a real passion and it's it's not merely busy work, um, I think it allows you to be more open and vulnerable in relationships. Oh yeah. No, I I really bow to that. Um, well, I'm going to let you bow elsewhere because you don't need to bow to me, but you can bow with me. Um, mm. Oh, wait, I had one more very important <laughs> question. What is like the weird, no, I have two, 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 two. What is like the weirdest noises? Have you had like people fart or like fall asleep during meditation? Okay, here's the weirdest one that's happened. Um, and yes, yeah, so if people have farted, they've fallen asleep, but those, are, those aren't as weird as this one. I um, always tell people to turn off their cell phone. You know, that's like a given at the beginning, because meditation, we get really, really quiet and you just don't want. So um, I did a, I was doing a workshop and we did a sound meditation where I had them listen to, you know, just the background sounds in the room and the silence, and it was beautiful. And we got into a place of real stillness, and then all of a sudden we heard the yellow rose of Texas, that sound that they have on some iPhones to let a call. So a woman had the yellow. What does it sound like? It's like one of those things. It's, you know, it's really awful. So bugles and stuff like that, you know. So anyway, so it's in her bag, and so she's going into her bag to get it, and by mistake she hits the speaker. And so then you hear the sound, Mom, Mom, are you there, Mom? And everybody's sitting in silence. Mom, answer the phone, Mom. Mom, are you all right? And meanwhile, she's trying to get out of the room, the poor woman, and everybody breaks out laughing. <laughs> mom, Mom, will you answer the phone, Mom? And so finally she gets out of the room, and <laughs> it's like the whole, everybody that had been meditating like Buddhas was doubled over laughing. It was hysterical. The nice thing to tell you is I thought she'd never come back. I thought she'd be too mortified, you know. But she came back, and every, and people stood up, and they went around her and hugged her. Oh, so that's sweet. So she have a good welcome back. I think that that's like a really sweet, easy one, because it's like, that wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault, but, it, you know, it was, it was like 150 people in total silence, and all of a sudden you hear this boy's voice, Mom, Mom, you know, it was pretty good. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Um, so, yeah. what, what are your hopes for the new year as it's starting to come up? Or is that, am I not being present by even asking that? Should I resolve not to ask about resolutions? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think ahead to the new year. Um, right now, sitting with... Um, what's going on in the world a lot. And I'm sitting with uh, that there's been another round of out, outward violence, the inward violence. You know, it's like we pay attention all of a sudden when it's Paris, but there was, you know, 
thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslim people killed by ISIS over the last year, thousands and thousands and thousands, but when the several hundred from Paris got killed, you know, it's like draws our attention. Well, but understandably, like I think that's actually a great way in for people who wouldn't even know where Paris was on a map um, to actually know about that now. And I know that that for those of us who are so um, engrossed in the subject, I feel like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like people punish people for just like when when people were grieving about Paris and changing their Facebook status to Paris, I had a lot of friends be like, what about what just happened in Beirut? And I thought in my head, of course, but it doesn't have to be uh, either or. I'm completely with you. I, mostly I was bringing up the other others because so many people, so many Muslims have been um, suffering. That and, their lives don't get dead, that their lives don't get acknowledged in this, and the and the uh, ignorance that merges uh, those that are doing the killing with Muslims. Well, that I mean, that's the eternal challenge right now, right? Like when most people think about um, suicide bombers, they're gonna equate that with Islam versus with suicide bombers. Exactly. And then the other challenge there is that. Um, I rarely hear from Islamic groups stepping forward and saying this is not a reflection of us. And I think the reason is really complicated <laughs> because it isn't a reflection of them, so they may not even feel like, why should I need to come out and say that in the same way that I wouldn't come out necessarily and be like, Bernie Madoff is not a reflection of all Jews. I don't know, I'm just bringing up an example. Sure, sure. Um, so there's, there's that part, and then it also goes into the cultural relativity and the complicated parts of these. So things. it is complicated and mostly right now a lot I mean I like many people are looking at the parallel from 9/11 and knowing that right after that there was a sense of oh my god if we attack if we go if we attack Iraq it's just going to be like more and more cycles of violence and really getting that and then seeing like here we are again and it's exact same thing. And so it's just the tendency of humans when they get freaked out to attack and watching, watching that tendency. And, and so mostly what's going on in me right now, my prayer, is that there's this growing consciousness that's beginning to catch on that we don't move to, a, to healing our world by reacting with more violence. But how much is that consciousness new? Like, I lived in New York, I, the, my former office was blown up in 9-11, and I felt so much less attachment to it than I had um, these Palestinian campers I'd worked with, Palestinian and Israeli, and I really want to be clear that it was both, um, who were so sweet and so empathetic about this tragedy, and it was a tragedy. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I felt then I'm sort of more compassionate now to Americans. It's funny, in that instant, I felt like you can't have compassion for us because we don't have enough compassion for you. And now I realize like that's, it's not a zero sum game. <laughs> Whenever exactly. people feel it, it's fine. Yeah. But then the other challenge there is like, we live in a country where people have fundamentally different responses to violence. So like, to me, 9-11 was like a great opportunity for us to step back, but that's not what our country did. And just as you said now, it's not again. And I guess it's hard to live with the reality that like my response is very different from what 
a major part of the population's responses, or at least a very powerful part of the population's responses. Right. So when we say, well, what are what are we wishing? What what are we um, trying to serve? What direction are we trying to serve? To me, it's a um, more primitive part of the brain that responds by to violence with violence, and the hope in meditation and the hope in people talking as we're talking and being just real and as we can be is that we're waking up the part of our brain that gets that's more empathetic that's more mindful that actually has better executive decision making so that we can pause so that we can pause and we're back to counting to 10 but pause long enough to to come from a place that sees the bigger picture and moves us more towards peace. And I'm seeing signs of it. You know, all these um, restoration circles, you know, they're happening now around the country that, you know, first it was peace and reconciliation in, in South America, but now there's versions of it are happening all around the world, you know, um, that we're bringing people together that have been in some way enemies or in some way violated by one or the other and having them close in, be able to speak and say, Here, here's what happened to me, here's what it was like, and the other person saying, okay, I hear you, I get you. So humans can start bridging the differences, and it has. that's what's needed, the dialogues, the circles. It's not going to happen um, between those that are the most violently opposed to each other. It's going to happen between people that are le less triggered but still feeling a big gap, and we need to start somewhere. And so that's more where I see my energy going towards, you know, how can we have more of these reconciliation circles and restoration circles and healing circles on every level, whether it's with African Americans and the police in a certain city or, you know, wherever it is where there's been that gap that leads to cycles of violence. That's what will help to activate the compassion and wisdom that is the hope for, you know, our world, really. And so you would rather focus on that with the people who are willing versus, um, you know, beating the door down to, I don't know, a member of the Tea Party or someone who's, who's much more into, interested in aggressive tactics? Well, you work where you can, yeah. Yeah, you start where you can, start building understanding, but gradually it becomes a movement. More and more people care, more and more people want to step beyond the confines of their old identity, and I'm seeing that happen. It just, that's the place it feels like important to put energy. And maybe it's like feeling like this is enough. It's not everything, but this is enough. This is the next step. It's like in Washington, um, the the racial conflict and violence that happened over the last few years has borne from it. Uh, we had a white awareness group that started meeting so that we could really honestly look at our own biases among you know amongst the uh, leaders in our organization, and we had also a group meeting of. I think eight African American and four whites and some LGBTQs and so on, a mixed group. And we've met for four years just for the purpose of what's it like to be you? So we could start opening up our consciousness. It's that kind of thing, Katie, where people of difference start finding out both feeling compassion for the places of difference and that basic love that knows that we're still of the same consciousness and we're still made of the same care and awareness. Well, I hope that that type of willingness and openness, openness at some point can be extended to people who really um, disagree. <laughs>
and look at it from such a different viewpoint. And I, it makes perfect sense that little by little yeah. is, is the only way to go. And it is happening. I mean, it's happening in schools where there's violence and, and they have ways of having circles now with the parties that really violently disagreed, you know, kids that have really beaten on each other. It's happening in communities around, you know, just in, through the justice departments and so on, in some cities in this country. It's, it's you know, it is beginning to happen. Um, thank you so much for letting this happen and letting us talk about this, um, uh, both your personal and professional hopes and your, um, it sounds like, hopes for humanity. Yeah, blessings to be with you. I love you, dear. Thank you. Love you, too. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Alex Seiner. Thank you to Superfine Audio. Thanks to all of you for listening. Go to employeeofthemonthshow.com and get on the mailing list. Um, and you can also follow me at Twitter at Katie Lazarus. Um, we also have a Facebook page. And those are the best ways to keep up to date with um, who's coming on the show, who had to switch to another date, who decided to bring an umbrella. You know, all of the important things are all there. Um, otherwise, have a great day. Okay, bye. It could be evening. If you're if it's evening, you're going to have to just figure out what to do, whether to have a great one or not.